Hi, you're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Nina Sokolov from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome to the show, Nina. Hey there. Nice to be here. So great to have you here. Nina, you were just telling me that your field research season just wrapped up. So are you happy about that or are you sad about that? Well, as I was saying, I've been doing field work since about February, since I work on bees in California. They're out for most of the year, at least the honeybees are. I could theoretically be doing field work indefinitely, but I have to kind of put a hard stop on that versus the the native bees that are out and about. Uh, I mean, some of my sites, as I was saying, the season seems to be wrapping up for them naturally anyway. So I really love being outside and I love doing the field work, but I'm also happy to get a bit of a break from that until about, I think it'll restart again in February. What do you study about bees? I'm an entomologist and a disease ecologist. So that means that I study insects and I also study the pathogens that infect them. And disease ecology is the study of understanding how pathogenic organisms exist in an ecosystem. So it's not like, you know, bacteria or viruses just kind of blip into existence and then disappear. They're always kind of circulating somewhere. And for my study organism of choice, I'm really interested in bees, both as I was alluding to the honeybee, uh, which is not native here, which is used in crop pollination, but I'm also studying native bees in California and then the uh, viruses that infect them. And pretty much I'm interested in that because as a lot of people know, you know, bees are struggling for a variety of these multifaceted reasons. And I'm interested in how disease is impacting their populations and potentially how there is spillover of viruses between these managed honeybees um, that are used for crop pollination and the native wild bees that they're interacting with. Okay. Viruses affect insects. That's Oh, yeah. Yeah, really weird to think. I mean, like insects don't get the flu, do they? <laughs> Not they don't get the flu, no, but they also as as the flu is an RNA virus, they're getting sick with RNA viruses as well. Before when I described spillover events before COVID, it'd be a little bit more challenging, but now that we're living in a spillover event, it's really right. easy to describe it. And so spillovers are defined as pathogens which circulate naturally in a and one species suddenly start to infect a different species via a spillover event. And these spillovers are just absolutely, you know, chaos and can happen at any moment. And whether or not something turns into a pandemic like this is um, terrifyingly chaotic. Uh, We're having, we're trying to attempt to predict these things, but it's very, very challenging. But these spillovers can be uh, occurring kind of all the time, including between, yeah, managed honeybees and native wild bees. It's just kind of the direction that people usually talk about, but the native bees can also be giving viruses to the honeybees. And even those really simple ecological dynamics of who's giving what virus to who, who is it majorly circulating in, what's the actual impact on the populations, all of those basic questions are still barely understood in bees. Even though bees are really important for crop pollination, for wildflower pollination, for giving us, you know, food on our plates and also the diversity of flowers that we see in nature. But even with all that importance and knowing that diseases are impacting them, we are still really in the infancy of understanding what those diseases are and of what they're doing, specifically for RNA viruses, because RNA viruses are really fragile. When I'm out in the field, I have to be collecting these bees onto dry ice and then putting them into a liquid nitrogen doer. And for a variety of reasons, they're just kind of a pain in the butt to work with. 
And so that's why of all the pathogens, I'd say there's the least amount known about the RNA viruses, but most likely uh, have a lot of impact and a lot of this cross-species movement. Okay, so you're studying like RNA viruses in general, I guess, or are you... So I don't know actually how you study the viruses. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm wondering, do you have particular viruses that you're looking for or can you just kind of get some bees and then you can look for any virus? Like, do you need to know what virus you're looking for to start the process? Yeah. So um, we're finding more and more viruses kind of the more that we look, of course. And so initially they're called these honeybee viruses because we were starting to find them in honeybees. But whether or not they are the origin is in honeybees, that's like fully not understood. And so as I was saying, I go out into the field, I collect these bees using a net, put them onto dry ice, put them into liquid nitrogen, and then I have to bring them back to the lab where I um, extract the RNA. And then I start doing molecular <laughs> uh, wizardry on them to, and I'm, as, as I'm saying, as, as you were suggesting, I'm looking for specific viruses. Some of them for me that are quite interesting are the ones that have been associated with bee die-off in honeybees, like deformed wing virus is kind of this pathogen that we know the most about, I'd say. And it's found in so many different species of insects. It's been found in cockroaches and ants even. So it's like spilling over millions of years of evolutionary distance. But overall, I'm trying to look for a small subset of these virus species that are known to cause negative impact in honeybees and are starting to be found in other bee species. There are other people who are looking more at from a like, discovery sort of perspective to find new viruses. And yeah, there's so many. And the more that we look, the more that we'll find. And so you're going out and you're getting both native honeybees and the managed uh, bee populations. And you're getting individuals from both. And you're trying to see if they both have the same viruses to see like if there's an exchange going. And are you... Is there some way that you're testing to see, um, like, can you actually see if based on the molecular data, the virus is moving between those populations? Yeah, I'm looking at non-native honeybees, but like honeybees that are out in uh, nature as well. And then the native bees. Um, That's correct. So I'm going to be able to be using phylogenetic methods, just as we look at genetic trees to be able to understand the relatedness between animals and everything. I can look at that as well with the viruses in general. When we look, it's kind of hard to say whether or not it's, you know, coming from the honeybee or coming from outside of that. Because when we look at these trees, we see there's just honeybees, bumblebees, honeybees nested within bumblebees. And so you would think that it would kind of cluster like all the ones that uh, infect honeybees in one group on the tree and all the ones infecting bumblebees in another cluster in another part of the tree. But in reality, they're all like intermixed with that. And so it's really hard to pinpoint um, the origin a lot of the time, but I'll be using those methods. Additionally, since, as I was saying, I studied disease ecology, that is kind of predicated on looking through time. It's not just, you know, looking out this one time point and seeing like, okay, who is sick, right? at this one point in time, because then if you find them both infected, you don't really have that much information. You just know that they're both infected, but you don't know who's the source of that. And so for a lot of my work, I'm going and I'm sampling from the same sites every two weeks to see, do I start to see, uh, say, deformed wing virus increasing in prevalence in the honeybees? And then with like a week time delay or something or two week time delay, do I then start to see that prevalence increase in the native bees? Or is it the other way around? 
you know, because that can give a sense of whether or not of this directionality is if you start sampling through time and you're able to see these epidemics kind of sweep from one host species to another host species. And in I'm working specifically in the Sierra um, for a lot of reasons. One, I really like mountains and <laughs> just like the wildflower meadows a lot. But for another, for a lot of these sites, I'm able to sample before any honeybees are there. So I get to have a sense of what are the native bees that are here? Are they infected with anything? That That's even, you know, baseline interesting. Then we experimentally put honeybee hives uh, in certain areas to make wildflower honey and to breed. But then they are also um, interacting with the native bees that are there. So I want to see, you know, were there viruses there to begin with? And then do we start to see viruses pop up that weren't there before once the honeybees have arrived? And so I'm also even sampling the honeybees before they, they move there um, to see, can I start seeing these viruses pop up in the native bees? after they've arrived. <laughs> um, so getting these like really simple, yeah, it's, you know, the direction of all these things is really interesting and yeah, just super not well figured out quite yet. Yeah. That sounds super complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're definitely more interested in the dynamics from what you're saying. Um, and maybe not so much the way the diseases work, but can I mm-hmm. like, what is deformed winning disease? What would, what would happen to the bee? Yeah, so deformed wing virus, um, and a lot of these insect viruses are aptly named um, because in the worst kind of case, the highest degree of uh, symptoms that a honeybee can face with it is when they emerge from being a little pupa, so like a little baby bee, into an adult bee. When they emerge, they emerge with deformed wings, and so they're unable to fly, and a bee that can't fly can't really survive, and so they die soon after that. But what's tricky with a lot of these viruses, and again, what makes them hard to work with is just because they're called deformed wing virus doesn't mean that they're always going to cause deformed wings. So many of these pathogens are asymptomatic. And from a spillover perspective, that's even kind of worse because they are able to still successfully fly. They're still successfully able to forage. And that's where these spillover events are occurring. It's not from honeybees rubbing shoulders with a native bee directly, but instead say a a honeybee goes and forages on a flower, they're sick and they shed virus onto that flower and then they leave. And then a native bee comes to that same flower, they forage on it as well. And they pick up a certain number of infectious viral particles. We have no idea that dose, no idea how long that flower is infectious for. But then say if they've gotten to enough flowers or say their their immune systems are compromised because they're stressed in some way, then they are able to get infected with this virus. And you try to get samples of, if you can find them, the obviously affected bees and samples of bees that are apparently unaffected? It's very hard to find the ones that are that sick, you know, like it'll be very hard unless I'm opening up the hives or something. But then with the native bees, I just would never be able to find them. Right. Because I'm I'm collecting them mostly by the ones that are on the flowers since I'm using a net and everything. So I am intrinsically uh, biasing myself towards the ones that are less symptomatic. Um, and that's just something I have to be aware of. But from, again, the spillover perspective, the ones that are able to fly, even when they're sick and spread it even further are kind of what's what's interesting to this spillover dynamic anyway. But I'm keeping that in mind that this is an, probably likely an underestimation because I'm going to be always biasing away from those that are really sick. How, how do people know how the viruses affect the bees? Like are the those based on observations in lab settings? 
Yeah, so you can, um, most of our research and where a lot of the research funding for bee research is with honeybees. And so, and that makes sense because they're the powerhouse of crop pollination. And so there's a lot of money from the USDA and everything to figure out why are honeybees um, loss is so high. And um, there's a lot of laboratory experiments characterizing these different pathogens. But then with the native bees, we're just starting to bring them into lab conditions, experimentally infect them and see what the effects are. But that side of things is still really, really understudied. Have you started to get some results from the field work you've been doing? Yeah, <laughs> slowly. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm sitting on like a mountain of things that I need to, to process. But yeah, I am in short finding honeybee viruses infecting native bees on my sites. Um, but now it's to characterize these dynamics through time and, and get more fancy genetic information and data from that. But I will soon be holed away in the lab for the rest of the semester and not doing any field work. So I should be getting more results out soon. Are you excited about getting the results or do you wish you could be in the field and not doing the <laughs> statistics? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think the latter. I feel like I'm, I'm definitely... Uh, happy in the field and I think that that's where a lot of my skills lie uh, I just am more of a noob on the statistical analysis things but it'll come and I'm my lab is full of uh, people who are very proficient in coding and so I can always ask them for assistance it's not like you know a solo uh, venture my lab works on a bunch of different things um, within the field of disease ecology and disease evolution so I was the only B person my entire time here but now we just got uh, a new grad student, Sarah, who she also wants to work on bees. And so soon I can <laughs> teach her the lab skills that I wish someone would ta have taught me when I got here. Cause I know I didn't work on bees or diseases or I've never worked on either of those subjects before during my PhD. So it was a lot of learning as I went. <laughs> How did you end up in the lab that you ended up in then? So great question. Um, no, like, you know, in those personal statements we have to write, you have to have some sort of like logic, <laughs> right, along the way. But I truly just liked so many different things. And I studied ecology and evolution in undergrad. I worked in a bunch of different labs and had some field experience with insects. And pretty much I really liked my the field experience. We did an alpine ecology course actually like at the White Mountain Research Station, which is the UC reserve. But I was doing this when I was doing my undergrad in Toronto. And so I was like, yes, field work. This is great. <laughs> I love this. And then I was like, yes, bugs. Also great. Even took like a museum study course where I, and I, I really like to do art as well. And when I started looking at insects under the microscope, I was like, oh my God, like, look how beautiful you are. Like, my goodness, like creepy little aliens, you know? And I just like love how diverse they are. And, and that's kind of the time where I was like, okay, field work, bugs, something, <laughs> something from that. I don't know. I just futzed around. I, I uh, graduated my undergrad and then I was working as a research tech for two years, um, also in a completely unrelated lab. But I like loosely dipped a toe into a disease ecology project with these mosquitoes and vector competence sort of questions, like why can some species vector deadly diseases and other ones can't? And I always knew that some species could be bad vectors um, or disease but I actually didn't know that like within a species based on like the way that the mosquitoes reared, whether it's in like crowded conditions or like how well fed they are, that makes them a better or worse vector. So it's like, even within species, there's like variation in that. And I was like, 
what? You know, like, so like disease questions started to come up as interesting within that. And I never took like a disease ecology course. I never really thought of that, but I started for whatever reason, host parasite things are just like, woo, you know, like so cool. And so I tuned into my intrinsic interest in that. And I was like, okay, fieldwork, insects, disease things. What do we do <laughs> with this combination? And um, actually, when I was applying here, I was thinking of doing mosquito project because of that, that was being on my on my mind recently. But then, yeah, I started talking to my advisor, and we started thinking of these like bee related ideas. And I was like, well, actually, this is way better because I would love to. I mean, I have to unfortunately kill the the bees in order to figure out what they're sick with. Everyone always like gets a little heartbroken hearing that. They're like, oh, wait, you have to kill them? And I'm like, what are you doing to save the bees? <laughs> like, <laughs> thank you. Like, yes, I have to kill them, but there's also like thousands you know thousands around you right now it's kill, me killing all five is fine um but then yeah it was kind of just like a natural whittling down and then I ended up here like I yeah like I said I didn't even know that I was doing bee disease things until like I started <laughs> well into starting here so but it turned out to be great and you said art is uh important to you do you um do you use like field work as a chance to get inspiration? Are you like drawing and painting out when you're doing when in between the collecting parts of field work? You know, like I wish I could, you know, like I wish I could be one of those like classic naturalists, like out with a sketch pad on paper, but it's just so exhausting that, you know, having any additional energy to do a thing that's not absolutely required is very challenging. I do get inspired all the time for sure. Um, but to do art while I'm out there is is quite quite a challenge but I definitely think that having art skills are what helped me with a lot of the bee research because there's over 1600 species of bees in California you know there's a lot of diversity and there's very teeny tiny little differences (laughs) between them and when I'm drawing or when I've even just the act of practicing drawing any insects you know it gives you an attention to detail these tiny little things and as I was saying when I learn when I, I went kind of got this appreciation for looking at insects under a microscope I was taught scientific illustration by a PhD student at the Royal Ontario Museum who was using illustration for part of his thesis because he was redoing the praying mantid phylogeny because he's apparently a hot mess and so he was a very good teacher in the sense that and it was very hard in the sense that it's like oh is that patch of hairs there no why is it there? I'm like, oh, you know, like, um, they haven't been critiqued this hard in a long time in my art. Um, but it was actually really good because, yeah, with scientific illustration or trying to, like, you know, really accurately capture something, like, I don't even, I, hats off to anyone that does that for their career because it is so challenging. Like, I wouldn't say it's relaxing at all. <laughs> I'd say it is studying it for a really long time. And because every, because people are wanting to use that as like an accurate like scientific figure you know for these like species differences and so it has to be so precise so that's very challenging um but i really like appreciate using that for being able to distinguish between these species and stuff and with the bees i've even like made these little um native bee coloring book pages which i wanted to give out as like before covid like during these outreach events that i do at farmers markets we do little prizes and i'm like we can easily print out these coloring book pages. And it's also an excuse for me to draw these things, you know? And so I was like starting to do, um, I did a little series of those and I'm going to hopefully continue to do that to show kids like all these different diverse and like having a fact sheet on the back of it to show that there's more than just the honeybee, you know, there's all these different kinds of bees, including bees that are parasites too, you know? So 
yeah, a lot of using art um, in my science for both an attempt at relaxing and continuing that hobby in my life, but also using it pragmatically to, to teach people. And you're, you go to farmer's markets to, or you used to go to farmer's I, markets? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to restart that. So I'm, I'm part of the, this grad group on campus called CLEAR, which is the Communication, Literacy, and Education in Agricultural Research. And so it's um, run by a plant molecular bio professor who um, does a lot of awesome extension work. And it's a lot of plant molecular bio people in general, um, but I'm the, like the one integrated bio person that's there sometimes. And so they do a lot of, we do have done a lot of events together where we do like themed things. And we have like a booth at the downtown Berkeley farmer's market um, where we'd have, you know, games or um, like specimens that are there and talking to people. It quickly devolves in conversations about GMOs often, you know, it's a lot of that or pesticides and things. Um, but we've also done booths and um, workshops at uh, like the Bay Area Teens in Science Conference or uh, the Bay Area Science Festival, which used to be held at like the baseball stadium in, in San Francisco. But this past year was done remotely. And so that's why I designed the coloring book pages specifically for that event. You also mentioned that you have another way that you're using art and outreach, right? That you're or trying to get off the ground. Yeah, yeah. So I'm also working with um, the Biota Project, which is a collaboration of a bunch of women identifying academics from kind of all over the U.S., where we're uh, merging kind of art and science and social justice initiatives. And so we are trying to get this project off the ground where we are making a kind of a zine workshop for incarcerated individuals in San Diego County, where we are going to be using zines which are kind of it's kind of whatever you want it to be but it's pretty much like a tiny magazine Um, and it can have short stories poetry art photographs collage kind of just anything in order to communicate um, ideas and they're pretty much like a self-published mini magazine some people use it for photography other people use it to communicate like uh, radical new thoughts and everything Um, yeah it's very independent and used for kind of self-expression and we really want to have it to integrate kind of ownership of scientific ideas to groups of people that might be kind of feeling disenfranchised by, by those entire institutions. And so we are making zines to communicate general ideas, presenting them in classrooms. And we're going to be presenting them in classrooms and uh, jails and prisons in San Diego, and then kind of allowing the incarcerated individuals to also contribute to that to make their own art that they can then we can then integrate into the next zine of the next topic and so kind of using that again as a reclamation of knowledge and power um, back in those classrooms and hopefully having some sort of good impact and to show that you know art and science aren't these like two binaries like they can be used together and to be able to be used in a way to yeah reach more groups of people than just, you know, you know, rich middle-class white people, (laughs) ideally. So hopefully we're working on writing up an NSF grant to get some funding for that. Um, Also trying to get little pools of money along the way um, to get that off the ground. And it's going to be in collaboration with uh, UC San Diego that does this like science class already in these like uh, local prisons and jails in San Diego County and um, Project Paint, which does this but instead of with science classes, with art classes. So we're all going to merge forces together um, and bring these uh, scenes into 
into prisons and stuff. So I'm pretty excited about that and have been reaching out to places to get quotes for our first zine, which is about cosmic, it's called Cosmic Cultures, which is kind of trying to highlight astronomical innovations and research in non-Western societies. And so I was, my little part of that was through my time that I went to Chichen Itza in Mexico, which is just kind of like a shrine of Mayan astronomical knowledge, truly. And I was really inspired by this kind of pool of water um, like this like pool where they would fill it with water and they would like children who are going to be destined to be astronomers one day would watch the reflections of the stars and the planets in the water and that's how they were able to make a lot of their calculations of when eclipses happen how planets moved how constellations moved and i was just like what you know like that's insane so i drew like an image of like a boy standing in the pool of water and with reflections of stars and stuff and so to give like a little blurb about that with that image and so collaboratively us with the biota project we've all like made our own whatever we were inspired by with that theme we made our own pages to um communicate the, these this kind of research this kind of knowledge and now i'm working on <laughs> figuring out in design to put that all into a zine together and start distributing that that sounds really interesting. Will it be widely available? Yeah, so we're hoping to get some money to get them uh, physical copies to be able to hand out to the scholars that we're going to be teaching um, so they can keep. And again, soon their own works will be integrated into those zines as we get more of a back and forth collaborative uh, effort going. And so they can, again, have this like ownership by ideas that I think is, is super important to um, reaching people that have been excluded in science historically. But then we're also additionally going to have an online um, copy that anyone can see. Nice. Um, something to look forward to. This has been really fun, but unfortunately, I think we are running out of time for the interview. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go? Yeah. Um, people always kind of ask me when I do outreach talks, like, how do I help bees? And so I always say that, like, uh, don't get a honeybee hive. Again, honeybees are not native here. They are called the European honeybee um, and were brought here by colonizers in the 1700s. <laughs> and the, the losses that honeybees face, that's an agricultural issue. There are high overwintering losses. A lot of honeybees are dying for a variety of reasons, but that's, kind of, that's quite an agricultural issue. So unless you're a crop pollinator, those losses actually like don't, <laughs> don't impact uh, the health of that species. So if you wanna help bees, you can do a lot to help the native bees here, which are actually uh, showing evidence of declines in their species. And there's bees that are starting to be listed on the endangered species list and everything too. So if you wanna help with that, I'd say that any individual can assist in that by uh, providing good quality habitat for native bees, planting native flowers, providing space for, like I was saying, most bees are ground nesting bees. So you can just even provide like barren dirt for them to make their nests in as well. And so just turning into any amount of area that you have, if you have access to that, to provide resources for uh, these native bees, especially in ha these habitats that are really fragmented. And even specifically pl planting flowers that could be blooming at times when there's not a lot else blooming. Like right now, things are drying out, you know, it's really, really dry, not many flowers. You can plant anything that will bloom later in the year or earlier in the year and that will be helpful or are there specific things like yeah there's like you them? can look up specific um not all flowers are pollinated by bees there's like hummingbird pollinated flowers and they look quite different so you can look up in the area that you live in bee flowers and like the seasons that they bloom in and so to try to pick things that 
that bees like that bloom in the spring, the summer and the fall, if you can. And yeah. you're saying people like in Berkeley with yards can just yes. have a little patch of dirt and they'll get some bees that will nest there? They, yeah, definitely. Um, they, bees will want to ideally make a nest somewhere near floral resources. Um, so having flowers around it also do that um, pretty well. But yeah, <laughs> if you build it, they will come. If you have flowers that bees like, they will, they will find them. Um, so I definitely think that people can make an impact on just yeah, planting native native flowers that bees like because they're, they're struggling for the resources, you know. L- luckily around here, there are a lot of gardens and everything, but um, I'd say that that's one way that an individual person can help. And having a native bee nest in your yard, is that like I could be in my yard and have a native bee nest there and we would both coexist and it would be fine? Oh, absolutely. Um, even like as far as like bee aggression goes, like the grumpiest ones are the honeybees and you're probably not going to have a feral hive. Um, I've never been like stung by like a native bee, even like other than the bumblebees, which accidentally like sting me when I'm getting them in the nest. Most bees are solitary, most species. Um, So that means that they don't have a hive. And because of that, they don't really want to get in a situation where it's this like highly aggressive situation. You know, they don't want to, they don't, they're just trying to look out for themselves. And so they don't want to be in this really uh, high intensity situation potentially. So they're overall really, really non-aggressive. The only ones that get aggressive are the social ones. And that's when you get like really close to their hives, but I've never been stung by anything, just getting close to the hive like that. And you need to be. Okay, great. Today, I've been speaking with Nina Sokolov about her research on bees and the diseases that infect them. Again, thanks so much for being on the show, Nina. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.